Hi, I'm Steve Lance, your host of the Capitol Report on NTD News. If you have not done so yet, please hit that subscribe button to stay up to date with all of the latest news coming out of the nation's capital and beyond. Do tech companies apply content moderation requirements equally? It depends on who you ask, but one former Facebook employee tells NTD that he saw a political bias firsthand. NTD's Steve Lance spoke with a former Facebook content moderator who describes the double standards that Facebook uses when dealing with political content. Here's that discussion. Ryan Hartwig, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Steve. Ryan, uh, you're quite familiar with the way big tech works. If you could just give us a little bit of a background uh, to your experience. Yeah, so I worked as a, I was subcontracted by Facebook as a content moderator. So in t from 2018 to 2020, I worked for Cognizant and we had a contract with Facebook for that content moderation. Um, they, they, you know, as you know, after 2016, after Trump won, Facebook greatly expanded their, their content moderation um, in the United States. So they send, they spend billions of dollars on it each year. So I was a part of that. So I, every, po you know, if someone reported a comment or a post or a photo, I was the one that had to review that and determine if it, it violated Facebook's guidelines. So, and you actually wrote a book about your experience there. What, uh, what are some of the highlights? Yeah, so my, my book that published last year, Behind the Mask of Facebook, um, is a 300-page uh, book with evidence chock full of examples of how Facebook has a double standard when it comes to treating political ideologies. So they, they censor and, and target conservatives. For example, you know, they made exceptions to allow attack, attacks against straight white males as filth. So that, that, that's allowed, that's no longer hate speech because Facebook made an exception. Or, you know, when Don Lemon said white males are terror threats, they made an exception for that. Um, and they also just, anytime Trump gave a speech, for example, even Trump's State of the Union speech, Facebook told us to look for hate speech coming from, from him speaking. So those are a few examples, um, but not, not only that, but how they influence in elections and how they influence elections in the U.S. and throughout the world. We're seeing with these uh, drops of the Twitter files that there's close links between the FBI and uh, Twitter. Um, would you be surprised if, if there were you know, a similar relationship between uh, Facebook and other big tech companies? I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, so, yeah, the Twitter files seem to actually mirror what, what I have in my book, Behind the Mask of Facebook, you know, just how with the examples of, of censorship and, and just the blatant abuse of, of their powers. Um, for example, uh, Eric Ciamarella was the Ukraine whistleblower that kind of spurred, the, started that whole impeachment proceeding against Trump with his call with the Ukraine president. Facebook's stance on that whistleblower was to delete any mention of his name. And they supposedly he was a he was law enforcement, but he's not. He was NSA. So the fact that Facebook took that action to to not allow discussion of this individual would indicate that there's probably yeah there, there's most likely government influence or you know the, the government's probably most likely directing Facebook. I didn't have concrete evidence of that, but everything leads you know indicates that that was happening. Speaking of the government, this is most likely going to cause a political storm in Washington, D.C. Um, when it comes to Section 230, um, do you think that this is going to raise that issue? It is. It is. So the, the, uh, what, it, what it is is the non-delegation doctrine. So Congress should be making the laws, not the agencies. We saw this in the Supreme Court case earlier this year with the EPA, where the, where the Supreme Court basically said, Hey EPA, you're you're making up the law, the rules yourself. You need to let Congress make the rules. So the same thing is happening with Facebook and big tech. 
they're acting as, they're basically acting as government agencies. Uh, Congress gave them the, that authority to restrict, restrict speech. The main takeaway from Section 230 is that it's been mis misinterpreted. So there's two parts of the law. That's there's Section 230C1 and C2. The Ninth Circuit Court has misinterpreted and, up and given and used Section 230C1 to give those protections to big tech. But and then C and they're not using C2 as, as they should. C2 has the Good Samaritan provision. So the reason they can do whatever they want is we're not applying the law as it should be, and we're not applying the Good Samaritan provision. Is it also a case of the uh, the, the the law not evolving with the technology? Because the law was written before the concept of say Facebook was even there. That that's part of it. I mean, if you look at the history of of our country. But you think it could still be solved with the proper interpretation? I think it would be solved with the proper interpretation. So there's people who call for abolishing it completely. I don't think that's the correct approach because if we were to rewrite it now with the, how many lobbyists we have, uh, or it, it would be influenced toward Facebook. So I think it can be yeah interpreted mis it can it can be interpreted correctly and fixed at the Supreme Court. Ryan Hartwig, thank you so much. Thank you. Now turning our attention overseas, we have a distinguished research fellow at the National Defense University, Thomas Lynch, on to discuss the U.S. involvement in the Ukraine war. Lynch spent 28 years of active service in the U.S. Army at various command and staff positions. Steve Lance asks Lynch specifically, what does the U.S. want to see coming out of this war? Here's a look. How do you view um, this whole thing ending? in terms of our relationship with Russia um, over the next five, ten years? First, you know, historically and analytically, most conflicts like this do not end with absolute success by one side or the other. They tend to end through diplomacy, they tend to end through negotiation with suboptimal outcomes for both the protagonist and the antagonist in this case, Ukraine and Russia. So I think if we get our heads around that a little bit, and also, if we look at the absolute power structure, so long as Mr. Putin doesn't want to give up on hanging on to this fight, uh, and it looks like he's got a lot of resources that he can do this with, he may not be able to win it, but neither can Ukraine reverse all the ill-gotten gains that Mr. Putin has made going back to 2014. So I think it's safe to say we're probably going to see a negotiated settlement here of some type or the other. The question is how to get Ukraine as much as possible while reestablishing this norm that, you know, military ill-gotten gains are not acceptable in the international system and Russia is not going to be allowed to rewrite that norm, you know, on the backs of the Ukrainians. So I think we're looking for that and we're probably looking then in the next four, five or six months for, for Ukraine to kind of have enough um, military advantage so it can go to the negotiating table and ask that the United States and our partners and allies and friends support Ukraine in, in perhaps diplomatically recovering some of what Mr. Putin has claimed that Ukraine doesn't get all the way back through its military fight, but does so in a way that doesn't put Russia in kind of a putative outcome where you'd be asking for enormous reparations, you know, financial reparations, you'd be asking for a Russian apology, et cetera, et cetera. You'd rather try to find a steady status quo state where Russia basically is, is seen globally as not having succeeded where the norm of 
non-military interventions to get states, you know, borders to change is reestablished. And then maybe there's, there's some kind of a protectorate, you know, international protectorate, not unheard of. UN forces, other forces kind of as a buffer zone, perhaps in part of the Donbass, perhaps, you know, down around Ukraine. Maybe the Turks are involved in that in some way since they seem to want to moderate. Uh, but then the, then the question is, you know, what about Russia-U.S. relations? Well, I think Russia under Mr. Putin, which had been playing a very weak economic and diplomatic hand very masterfully for about the last decade, getting global influence when people would scratch their heads and say, you know, how in the heck is he doing this with a Navy that, you know, can't steam under its own power and breaks down or, you know, without seemingly having forces militarily trained but doing it by mercenaries. He has really cost Russia a lot of that power base. And as a consequence, Russia will be, be weakened instinctively weakened. Uh, but in that context, from the United States perspective, uh, Russia still could be a valuable autonomous player vis-a-vis -vis China. Not that we're going to become friends with Russia overnight, but rather that if there is a peace outcome in Ukraine that is both reasonably just, but also acknowledges the territorial sovereignty of Russia, and that that should not be violated, then you don't give China a play to try to make Russia more of a vassal state or more of a tightly coupled ally, um, which long term, if you read our national security strategy and you look at history like I do, this is really an outcome that we don't want to have happen. We don't want China and Russia to become so tightly coupled that it basically is them unified against us. Right now, they don't like our rules. They don't like our norms. They don't like our order. But if you look at China, China has, has not violated U.S. and Western sanctions on military and military-related goods going to Russia. There's, there's some good fortune in that in showing, one, that China at this point doesn't want to risk crippling sanctions that would come if it did do this and got caught doing it. But second, it also shows that Russia remaining as a great power, although an enfeebled and kind of a mediocre one, still then is something that China has to plan against, not as a perfect ally and never a threat but rather as a, another big country that it's got to factor into its calculus as it thinks and works with the, with, the, with the competition it has with the United States. So I think that's the ideal we would have over the next five years. Russia chasing and not allow the fruit of victory um, um, in Ukraine, but its territorial sovereignty and integrity maintained. Whether or not Mr. Putin goes, a relationship that tries to return to diplomacy as the way in which to settle grievances and disputes between Russia, the United States, and the rest of the West, and China not gaining either a stolid ally or gaining a vassal relationship with another country that has, let's face it, a lot of power resources when you think of fossil fuels and you think of minerals and other th rights, even, even access to the North Pole, right? China covets that, and there are strategic reasons it covets that. And there are also strategic reasons why Mr. Putin, for all the things he's promised and done with China over the last decade or so, has never really given Beijing a footing in eastern Russia or particularly near the North, near the North Pole because he doesn't want China's great power encroaching on that area that he wants to manage and maintain. And I think at this point, Washington should want that to continue. It should want you know, China not to make East Russia a vassal state or get access to the North Pole for everything from nuclear missiles to space management to other things. It's better to keep Russia as a, as a enfeebled 
weakened state, but still one that has enough capacity and the territorial integrity to stand as something that Mr. Xi has to calculate when he's factoring how he competes against two other great powers. Dr. Tom Lynch, really appreciate your perspective. Great. Thank you, Steve. I just want to thank everybody for listening to this episode. If you enjoy our content, please leave us a rating and a review as it really goes a long way in helping us spread the truth. Until next time, I'm your host, Steve Lance at NTD, and we'll see you soon. Thank you.